please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 11. As you turn there, a happy Father's Day to you dads and those of you who have dads and fathers. I was talking to Scott on the way in this morning. I said, you know, uh, Father's Day seems a lot more relaxed than, than Mother's Day. There's a lot of pressure on Mother's Day for a husband. I said, you know, Mother's Day is like Christmas. And there's all sorts of expectations about what it's going to be in, entailed in, in the celebration. And Father's Day is like Boxing Day in Canada or something. We're not quite sure what it is. We know we're supposed to celebrate something, and it's on our calendars. My, my daughter, yesterday evening, as I asked about her Father's Day plans, her big celebration, if she's going to get up early and watch the parade and things like that, uh, she said, tomorrow's Father's Day? So, <laughs> still have a little time, sweetheart, if you want to get going there. Uh, but no, seriously, happy Father's Day, and a happy Father's Day to my, my dad. I know he listens to uh, my messages and, and things like that, so this is uh, my opportunity to give him his second Father's Day greetings. He's in Kenya, actually, today, so I'm not going to be able to, to speak with him, but uh, it's exciting that he's uh, feeling well enough to be able to go to, to Kenya on a mission trip, so excited about that, and thankful for his godly heritage. Well, if you would stand with me as we read Luke chapter 11, parts of it together, the section entitled The Lord's Prayer or The Disciples' Prayer, and we're going to begin in verse 1 of Luke chapter 11, and we're going to read through verse 13. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say... Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, a friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You may be seated. May God be exalted through his word this morning. Let's pray as we turn our attention to study God's word. And Father, we do pray that your name would be glorified and hallowed. We pray that your kingdom would be established in our church and in our lives now and in the future. And, and Father, we pray that you would open our hearts as we study your word together. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began looking at this section of scripture that deals with the disciples' prayer. And what we saw last week is that the disciples' prayer contains the, the God-exalting pattern for prayer that those who would follow Jesus are to pray. 
Those who are to, to follow Jesus and pray the way that he instructs us to have the Lord's Prayer as a model for how to do so. We saw that if you want to engage in God-exalting prayer, it begins by asking God to be exalted in your lives and for his kingdom to be established. And as a dad, I was really encouraged this past week as our, our children began to try to apply some of the things that we had talked about last week as we studied the first part of the Lord's Prayer. And it was really sweet to listen to them talk about how they wanted God to be glorified in their lives. And it was neat to see how it affected what they, they prayed for as they began with an, a request for God for his name to be glorified in our family. This week, we're turning our attention to what to ask God for, how to petition God. Now, what do we say to God and, and what do we ask for and, and how do we ask for the things from God after we've begun by exalting his name? And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how my own children ask me for things, and, and each of my four children kind of have a different approach to asking me for things that they want. Our youngest daughter, Ellie, who is four years old, will, will come to me very shyly and timidly, and in fact, she's reluctant to even actually ask me for anything. She'll come to me and she'll say something like, and she'll put her finger in her mouth, and she'll say, Daddy? Say, yes, sweetheart. She goes, Daddy? I like to watch TV. That's, that's great, sweetie. And she'll go, Daddy, do you like to watch TV? Yeah, I like to watch Daddy, this would be a good time to watch TV. What, she, do, she won't ask it, right? She has, she's, she's timid. She's shy. Our, our next oldest child, our little boy, he, he's just like super energy guy. And so he's coming and he's bouncing on you. He's asking for things. And sometimes he's even forgetting what he's asking for because he's just so excited to be around you. I mean, he's just all energy. Our next oldest child, uh, he begins every question with the phrase, hey, dad. Like, I'm thinking about something. Hey, hey dad. And then he'll, he'll ask me for something. And if I, if I tell him to wait or let me think about it, he'll say, yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. But you can tell this, this thing on his mind is all consuming. And so he'll wait about five minutes and then come, hey, dad. Uh, did you think some more about whether or not I can play? We, uh, hey, Dad, what do you think? And so he's just constantly thinking about it. Now, my oldest, my, my daughter, who is 10, uh, she has perfected the art of asking Dad for things. She knows exactly when and how to ask me for things. This past week on Thursday was her Daddy Date week, and so we went out, and as uh, we're driving in the car, we're, we're asking each other questions, we're taking turns asking each other questions, and she, she asks this, and uh, knowing that I'm thinking about ice cream and I'm in a good mood and I'm excited, she says, Daddy, what do you think about me getting my ears pierced? And in a moment of weakness, a moment of thinking about ice cream and just wanting to, to let, my, let, my, let my little girl feel joy, I said, that sounds like a great idea. And so yesterday found us at a store and me watching her come out of the store with these holes that God had not put in her head uh, there in her ears and me thinking what in the world happened I said sweetheart who told you you could do this and she said you did dad I said you've just made a sermon illustration young lady <laughs> God how do we ask God for things how do we petition our heavenly father that's really what we're going to be talking about this week and and next week as we as we look at the disciples prayers it turns from exalting God's name and glorifying God's name and and it turns to us asking God for things, us petitioning him for things. We're going to see, as we look at the disciples' prayer, that we have a, a model on how to exalt God 
as we ask him for things. And my guess is that many of you struggle with knowing how to rightly approach God in prayer. Some of you are very spiritual as you pray, and there's a hesitancy that you have to actually ask God for physical things. And so you'll ask God, God, help me love this person, or, or God, help me have joy in this situation, or God, give me peace. But the idea of actually asking God for physical, tangible things kind of makes you a little bit uncomfortable. Some of you are on the other extreme. Uh, some of us are, are so focused on the physical world that it's hard for us to ask God for, for spiritual anything. And so our prayer requests to God in, in a Sunday school class or in our own, we're praying, God, please give me this job. God, please deliver me from this illness so that uh, I, don't, I won't feel uncomfortable. Uh, God, please provide this financial need. God, please provide this financial need for someone else. And so our prayers are, are entirely physical. And what we see in Scripture is that God calls us to ask for physical things, and he calls us to ask for these physical things for spiritual reasons as well as physical, and that our prayers and our petition to God have direct impacts on what happens in the physical world around us. Our request for food, our request for uh, financial provisions from God, our request for clothing, our request for healing, those things, the things that happen in our life in the physical world are affected by how we pray. And what my hope is this morning as we turn to this section in Scripture the disciples' prayer, that you have a, a burning desire within you to pray as you ought, to pray as the Lord instructs us to. So let's look again at the text, and we're going to review a little bit about what we talked about last week to kind of lay the groundwork for how we request things from God. So let's just kind of uh, give a little bit of an overview again. Remember, it began in verse 1 of Luke chapter 11, and Jesus is praying as is his custom, and as he prays, one of his disciples, or as he finishes praying, one of his disciples comes to him and says, hey Jesus, uh, we see that prayer is important to you, now we'd like you to instruct us in how to pray as John instructed his disciples, and so Jesus gives them this model for prayer, a pattern, and he bases it off a prayer that he had most likely already taught them, we see it in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, it's this, this sermon here in Luke chapter 11 is very similar to the prayer in Matthew chapter 6. It has the, the same categories, although the one in Matthew chapter 6 is a little bit longer. They both contain the same elements. And so he gives them this pattern for prayer. The first thing that we saw last week as we think about principles for prayer is that you and I are to, to pray to our Heavenly Father. The first principle last week, pray to your Heavenly Father. Remember we saw that this word Father that Jesus begins with shows us that there's a familiarity we have with the one to whom we are praying, and there's an authoritative relationship that God has over us. And so we approach God not as some distant deity, but as our Heavenly Father. That's who we're praying to. The second thing we saw last week is that we pray for the exaltation of God's glorious name. All God-honoring, God-exalting prayer begins with this truth. God is a holy God, and the foundation of our lives, and therefore the foundation of our prayers, should be that God would be exalted. In Psalm 111.19, it says, holy and awesome is his name. God does things, we saw last week, so that his glory will be proclaimed. He created us so that his glory would be proclaimed. God is passionate about his holiness. In Isaiah 48, 11, he says, my glory I will not give to another. And so as you and I engage in prayer, 
we do so with this understanding. Our goal is that God's name would be exalted in our lives. As we begin with that prayer that God would be exalted in our lives, it drastically alters what we pray for, doesn't it? That leads us to the third thing we saw about prayer last week. We saw that you and I should pray for God's kingdom and his purposes to be established. We pray for God's kingdom and his purposes to be established. So often we come to that phrase in the disciples' prayer, we say, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. And what we're saying is, God, someday we're looking forward to this this kingdom coming. It's going to be lots and lots of fun. So thy kingdom come, we just kind of flippantly say it. But what we saw in Scripture last week is that God's kingdom is not just a future kingdom. It is certainly a real and future kingdom, but it's also a present kingdom that God is establishing right now in our lives, in our hearts, in our community. And we saw last week that God's kingdom coming is is a truth that means other kingdoms are being destroyed. And so when you and I say, God, your kingdom come, we're saying, God, come and destroy my kingdom, this this kingdom that I've built for myself and and the way that I want my life and the way that I want my, my children to be and the way I want other people around me to act. God, destroy that kingdom and establish your own. That's the groundwork. That's the foundation that is laid before we begin to petition God for things. And you see how important it is to begin with this understanding. God, my desires, I pray for these things, isn't that my own name would be exalted. My desires, I pray for these things, isn't that my own kingdom would be established. My desires, I pray for these things, is that your kingdom would come, your name would be glorified. That's the purpose of my life. It's the content of my prayer. That is a very hard paradigm shift for us to make. So let's turn our attention then to continuing going through the disciples' prayer and seeing the things that Jesus tells his disciples to pray for. The first thing that he tells them to pray for as he's talking about the things they should petition God for, they, we, you know, they and you and I pray for your daily needs. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, it says, Give us each day our daily bread. What Jesus is saying there is on a daily basis, moment by moment, hour by hour, every day, give us the necessities that we have for life. Bread refers to those things that you and I need to to live. A person that's going to pray this prayer, I believe, needs to understand two things that they're praying. First of all, they're committing their trust to God. They're trusting in God. When Jesus says here, give us each day our, our daily bread, what the disciples saying as he repeats these words of Jesus is recognizing, look, the source of all my needs, the source in, in, that's going to meet all my needs is not myself. My source is, is you, God. I recognize that my hope and my trust lies not in the, the uh, checking account balance my uh, source of trust is not in this great job that I have. I'm not trusting in my, my mom and dad even to provide for my, my food, my daily needs. Ultimately, God, as we pray this prayer, give us each day our daily bread, we're recognizing that moment by moment, our needs are met by God. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above. It's God that provides our needs. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, uh, 
what did you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, the person who prays the disciples' prayer here and says, give us each day our daily bread, is first of all saying, I trust in God ultimately to be the one who provides me with what I need. Let me suggest to you that this is a very hard notion for some of us who have grown up in this North American culture to accept. So often, we believe that we are the ones who provide what we need for ourselves. And we have the the puritanical work ethic, and we say, okay, I'm going to take my own two hands, and I'm going to work hard, and as I work hard, I'm going to provide for myself, I'm going to provide for my family, and and I'm going to be the one who meets my needs. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and do what it takes to provide for myself and others. And there's certainly some biblical truth to that attitude, but when it becomes a recognition or a belief that we are the ones who ultimately provide for ourselves, it's a very unbiblical attitude. And the person who has that heart attitude is not one who can pray the Lord's Prayer truthfully. My daughter Ellie has been carrying around a a book this week, and it's called uh, Peter and the Penny Tree. And it was published in 1970, so I guess a penny was worth more in 1970. But anyway, it's about Peter, this little boy whose family gives him pennies, and he keeps on getting all these pennies, and he takes uh, three of the pennies and he digs this hole and he puts the pennies in the ground and he, he puts the dirt back over and I think waters it or something and, and waits for the penny tree to grow. And uh, the penny tree does not grow. And so Peter goes and he does some chores and his dad gives him some pennies and Peter comes to this realization. Peter says, uh, now I know that only I can make my pennies grow. In other words, it's kind of reinforcing that, that work ethic. You go, you're the one who can, can do things and make your, your finances increase. And let me suggest to you that if that's the message you're communicating to your children as you teach them about hard work, you're not teaching them to accurately understand God's involvement in their lives. A biblical understanding of work says, I recognize that God has called me to work and to provide for myself and others, but even as I do so, I recognize and trust in God ultimately for the provision of my daily need. So a person who, who says, uh, God, I'm, I'm praying each day for you to continually provide me with my needs, first of all, is trusting, but a person who's praying this also is demonstrating contentment. Trust and contentment are two crucial things to understand about the Lord's Prayer here. You see, look at the text again. He says, give us each day our our daily bread. And some people have said, well, notice he doesn't say bread and fish. He just bread, the the bare basics of life. And don't ask for anything more. And I I don't think that's the point. I mean, he doesn't say, give us this day our our really stale bread, uh, day old bread. Uh, But no, he's he's praying for our daily bread. But he's praying for the the basic provisions of life. Well, here's here's my, my point. I believe that a person who can pray this prayer has a heart that's content with whatever circumstances God places them in. And so a person that says, God, what I'm asking you for is the, the, the daily provisions that I need, and on days that God provides just bread, that's great, God. Thank you for the bread. And on, on days that God provides meat and fish and bread and, and all sorts of uh, abundance, then, then God, I'm content with that as well. The danger to you and I 
is that often, again in our cultural context, as we beseech God in prayer, we're betraying that our hearts are not content with the provisions he's already given us. And our heart is saying, God, I'm not happy with what you've given me. I want more, and I want more, and my heart isn't going to be satisfied until I I get all these, these fleshly desires that I crave. Ecclesiastes 4.8 tells us that there's no end to our toil. Our eyes are never satisfied with riches. Ecclesiastes 5.12 tells us that sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much. But listen to this. The full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The person who, who's wealthy and, 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 and consumed with, with the desires for more wealth, he can't rest because his desires are on that which can't bring satisfaction. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a leaf. So often we believe happiness is entailed, or happiness is achieved as I, as I get what I desire. Whenever I was younger and, and would be read fairy tales, one of the most frustrating genre of stories for me was the stories that, that involved three wishes. It was so frustrating for me because no one ever asked for anything good. And no matter what they asked for, it always turned out poorly. And I thought, man, if I just got in that situation, of course, the first thing I would do is wish for more wishes. But I would be so wise and judicious with my wishes, I wouldn't be like, like the story of the woodcutter. Remember the story of the woodcutter? That story would drive me crazy. The woodcutter comes home. He's gotten these three wishes from a wood sprite, and, and he, he uh, is going to tell his wife, and instead she puts soup down in, his, in front of him, and he goes, oh, man, I wish I had a sausage, and poof, he has a sausage, and his wife finds out what happened, and she's yelling at him, why did you wish that? And he says, I wish the sausage was stuck to your nose, and it's stuck to his, and of course, he has to use the last wish to get the sausage off the nose. That story drove me insane, and each time I heard of it, surely they'll do it differently this time, but those stories about wishes and how they always turn out poorly stem from the fact that even secular philosophers recognize that there's something about the human heart that won't find satisfaction in the material world. It's a losing game. In fact, uh, if you would, keep your finger there in Luke chapter 11 and turn to 1 Timothy 6. This is a passage that you need to understand if you're going to pray the Lord's Prayer rightly as you ask Him for your daily needs. 1 Timothy chapter 6 Let me begin in verse 5. He's talking about depraved people. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, he says, The people that are depraved imagine that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, people that are depraved think, if I act in a godly way and I, I do this, this religious thing, I do this church thing, if I do that, then I'll, I'll gain materially. And you know people like that, that have that thinking. If I do the right things, then, then God will bless me financially. He'll bless me uh, physically. And, and I want these physical blessings, therefore I'll be godly. He says, that's a depraved thinking. Depraved people think that godliness is a means of gain. Now he says, he goes on, says, now, verse 6, there is, there is great gain in godliness with what? Contentment. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with, this, we, with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If a person is going to pray for their daily needs, it begins with trust in God as the source of the one providing what they need, and it continues with contentment in whatever God deems right to grant us. And he says, he goes on, and he says in verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Charge them not to set their hope, their trust, on the uncertainty of riches. A person who hopes in riches will find that riches are a flighty mistress. When I was in high school, I had a really good friend that was insane. One time we would, it wasn't unusual for us to, to go into a restaurant and as we, we left for the, the police to be called. Not because of anything like necessarily wrong he was doing, but he was just weird. Like, and he liked to mess with people. And so he'd, he'd just kind of stand there in the middle of the restaurant staring at the waitress or something just to, to see what would happen. We'd be driving our, the car at night and I'd give him rides home from work. We both worked at that illustrious uh, food chain Arby's, and uh, we would be leaving our prestigious job there late in the morning, and, and if we would uh, pull up to a car that had some girls in it, I'd be driving, and he'd lean over, he'd honk the horn, and then duck below, and I'd, I'd look over, and it just looked weird. Uh, one time, one time late at one o'clock in the morning, there's this rough, rough group of guys uh, in the car next to us. He rolls down his window and just starts shouting things at them, like, you're not so tough. Da, da. And uh, I pulled a little Dukes of Hazard move and, and got out of there. But uh, the guy was crazy, fun, but crazy, and extremely unreliable. When I filled out my resumes for places, I didn't put his name. Uh, when he asked me if I wanted to go on a, a cross-country trip with him, I said, no, uh, I want to live. I mean, he was a fun guy, but completely unreliable. Those of us who place our trust in riches and finances are placing our trust in an unreliable friend, a person that will be there for us one moment and gone the next. A person that prays the Lord's prayer rightly with the right heart attitude says, my trust is in God, and whatever he just deems fit to grant me with, I will be content. My encouragement to you as you think about how to pray this rightly would be to say, look, I'm, I'm going to begin with my focus on God. I'm going to begin by saying, hallowed be your name. I'm going to say, begin by saying, your kingdom be established. And then my prayer to God is for my daily needs to be met and my heart to be content in whatever he deems appropriate for me to have and to use what he gives me for his exaltation. The second thing that we see here as we talk about what we're to pray as we petition God, we're to pray for forgiveness. Look again at the text with me, if you would. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, And forgive us our sins, 
For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. The Lord's prayer that he's teaching his disciples, the disciples' prayer, recognizes that we have a need for forgiveness from God. And then here's the tricky part. The forgiveness that God offers us is related to the forgiveness that you and I offer others. What does that mean? Well, let's, let's consider a couple things here. There are several words that are used in the original language in which Luke and the other New Testament writers wrote that we translate into the English word forgive. And sometimes we miss the nuances as we just read the word forgive. The word that Jesus uses here, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive, that word forgive means to release, means to, to let go. To, sometimes it can be translated to, to send away. It was a legal term. Whenever a person would be uh, indebted to another person financially, that person had the option of releasing, of, of sending away that debt. The tense that Jesus uses here is a, a present tense. It means this, there's this continual need that you and I have for, for, for forgiveness, and we are continually offering forgiveness to other people. Let's, let's think through a couple principles of forgiveness from the disciples' prayer here. Number one is this. Sin causes indebtedness. Sin causes us to be in debt to others. When you sin against another person, when you sin against God, there is a debt that you have toward that person. There's a debt that you have toward God, a great debt. And that debt cannot be met by any work on your part. The debt that we have toward God especially is, is so consuming, so overwhelming, that we have no opportunity to meet that debt on our own. Now, maybe some of you have, have been in financial debt toward, uh, to, to another person or to another entity. Uh, whenever I was in junior high, my parents did one of the, the best things parental for me ever, they allowed me to get into debt to them to quite a bit of money, like for a junior hire, like, I don't know, $20 or something. A couple things came up, and I, I kept on owing them money, I kept on owing them money, and, and uh, they allowed me to, 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 to get into that debt. And every dollar that I got, be like a Christmas card or whatever, it was, it was owed to them. And it was just this, this terrible, oppressive feeling. There was something in that relationship that just that was off, and I just wanted to be out from underneath that debt, and it gave me a, a great hatred for being financially obligated to another person. You and I have a far greater debt, obviously, spiritually, to God. And this disciple's prayer begins in the section dealing with forgiveness, asking God to release us from that debt. So the first principle, sin causes indebtedness. Secondly, we see here, you and I must release those who have wronged us. If we want to be assured of God's forgiveness, let me put it this way, if we want to be assured that we have already received God's forgiveness, we're going to need to have hearts that are forgiving as well. You can't avoid a person who's wronged you. You can't ignore the fact that this wrong exists. And yet, you and I must be continually ready to release those who have wronged us. 
Ephesians tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, 32, Paul writes, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3, 13, bear with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You and I have a responsibility when one has wronged us to release them from the obligation to pay us back. The third truth, and these become a little bit more uncomfortable, if you are unwilling to release others, do not assume that you yourself have been forgiven. Perhaps even right now, if I ask you, think of someone who's wronged you. Some of you, before I finish the sentence, before I finish the question, you have a name in mind. If there is in your heart an unwillingness to release that person from the obligation to pay you back, you have an unforgiving heart. You are not prepared to properly pray the disciples' prayer here. A heart that is unwilling to release others from their obligations to them is a heart that may not have experienced God's forgiveness of them. In fact, turn over to Matthew chapter 18, if, if you would. Here Jesus tells a, a great parable that perhaps you're familiar with, that shows this idea of indebtedness very vividly. In Matthew 18, it's the parable of the unforgiving servant, and, and Peter comes to Jesus and he says, how often do I need to forgive my brother? And Jesus says this in verse 23, he says, the kingdom of heaven, this is Matthew chapter 18, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle one, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, he was indebted and could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. And so the servant fell on his feet imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant, what? Released him. He forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a small amount of wages, and, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will repay you the same words the servant had said earlier. He refused and went and put in prison until he should pay the debt. And of course, his fellow servants tell the master what's taken place, and his master deals with him. The parable's point is no one who's been forgiven this great debt would respond in such a way to someone who's been forgiven a little bit. And if you and I rightly are approaching God, asking him for forgiveness, we're going to be people whose hearts have been transformed by the gospel and are treating those who've wronged us differently as well. If you want to be able to pray the Lord's prayer that he teaches his disciples, and pray for forgiveness, 
you must have a forgiving heart as well. Forgiveness is a prerequisite to being able to pray well. As Charles Spurgeon put it, unless you've forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. You have a need for continual forgiveness. You have a need to continually forgive. That includes the, the great big sins of the world. I was reading an article recently about Rwanda, and remember the genocide that happened there in the 1990s. And in the 1990s, uh, one-tenth of the population was victim of this, this genocide. And you can imagine the survivors of, of the people who had been killed and the, the, the friends and family of the people who had been killed and, and the relationship that, that was just unimaginable to think about the people who not only had, had engaged in the genocide, but those who had been complicit in it. There's a method that they're using to deal with reconciliation among the people in Rwanda called uh, Gagaka. They have these Gagaka courts. And the idea is that you, you air your grievances and you, you try to make restitution. But you can see there that even in a court where you're trying to enact these, these, th this kind of justice among the people, it's not going to be sufficient in dealing with the pain. The thing that's sufficient in dealing with the sin that's been committed is the gospel. And the person who rightly recognizes their own grievous offenses before God has the ability to forgive others and exude a supernatural forgiveness of others. It's true in big things like genocide. It's true in little things like relational sins. I was reading a little bit of Don Whitney's book this week, uh, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. And one of the questions is, are you a quicker forgiver or he talks about someone in his own life, Don Whitney talks about someone in his own life whenever he was a pastor who worked tirelessly. This woman worked tirelessly to get him fired. She did things like holding, encouraged people to come to these secret meetings and air grievances against him. She, she tried to get all these deacons to, to vote him out. I mean, she just worked tirelessly to make this pastor's life terrible. It was so stressful on him that, that his, his wife and, and he both developed these, these physical ailments and a doctor was seeing his wife who had this, this life-threatening illness and the doctor looked at, at his wife and he looked at uh, Don Whitney and said, what are these people doing to you? And Whitney talks about how he had to learn to forgive that woman, release her from the obligation to pay him back for what she had done to him. We're going to come back to this in just a moment as we prepare for communion, but I'd, I'd ask you to be thinking in your hearts, God, give me wisdom to think through who I need to release from their obligation to pay me back in big and little things. So we're to pray for our daily needs. We're to pray for forgiveness. You're also to pray for deliverance. Look at the last part of the prayer here. It says, and lead us not into temptation. In other words, uh, don't entice us to sin. Now, we know that he's not saying here, uh, don't let us face any trials of any kind, because we know that, that trials are, are from God oftentimes that allow us to be greater tools for him to use. James 1.12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 1 Peter 4.12 says, do not be surprised at the trial when it comes upon you to test you. 
Romans, uh, Revelation 2.10 says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. You're about to go through this, this time of tribulation. In other words, uh, trials themselves are, are not bad. What I believe the prayer that Jesus is praying here is, uh, do not allow us to undergo more than we can handle. Do not put us in a situation in which we'll be enticed to sin and succumb to it. This prayer recognizes that you and I are frail human beings. And a person who prays this prayer is saying, God, I recognize my own humanity and my own inability to deal with the temptations in life that I face. And remember what I've prayed already, God. Hallowed be your name. Exalted be your name. May your kingdom come in my life. And so, God, please deliver me from these temptations I face. A few weeks ago, maybe you saw that, that press conference that a congressman gave. He'd been caught in trouble and, and uh, been caught in some immorality, and he was finally confessing what he had done. And, you know, whatever you think about what he, uh, what is, what he said, what caught me in that press conference as I listened to it on the radio were the questions the reporters were asking. Over and over again, the reporters asked this congressman this question, yeah, but why did you do this? And he'd give some answer, I, you know, I'm, I'm stupid. Yeah, but, but why did you do this? You know how dumb this is. You know how everyone gets caught. Why would you do this? Well, the, the Christian counselor, the Christian friend, never has to ask the question, why did you do this? Because the Christian, the believer, understands the enticement to sin. The believer rightly recognizes that all sin at its root is insanity because it's pursuing a course of life different than the life that God, our creator, has called us to. And so the Christian parent, when their, their child is in, engaged in this sin, doesn't say, why are you doing this? Why are you so angry? The Christian parent understands my child is doing this behavior because they're a sinner. I'm engaged in this behavior because I'm a sinner and I need a gracious Heavenly Father to protect me from myself. Lead us not, Jesus prays, into temptation. A Christian rightly recognizes our frail nature. And recognizes that God can deliver us from any situation. And so we want God to take, our, take our, our, our frail humanity and infuse it with his Holy Spirit. And give us the ability to lead righteous lives. And if you're going to pray this prayer, you must be a person who takes sin seriously. I was reading a report this last week about how the television shows that you watch can actually make you dumber. I was reminded of a book I read, uh, I've mentioned it before, it's called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. And he, he talks about a, a study in which they, they uh, primed these, these students with these words in this test. And uh, one students were given these, these uh, words in the test like, like rude, interrupt, uh, inconsiderate, waste of time. As they took the test, they saw those words and they were told to take their test and and uh, go and give them to another person, and the person they were to give them to was engaged in another conversation by design. And the test was to see how long students who had read those words, rude, inconsiderate, interrupt, how long they would wait before they interrupted that person. Another group of students was, took a test, and it had words like patient, kind, 
And they took their test in in same scenario. They found that the students who had been reading the words rude, inconsiderate, interrupt, interrupted within about five minutes on average. But then they found out this. Among the, and these are New Yorkers too. uh, Among the students, what? I'm not judging. Uh, Among the, (laughs) a little. Uh, It's cultural, not sin. Uh, Among the students who had been reading words like uh, polite, kindness, uh, 82% 82% of them never interrupted. Ten minutes went by, never interrupted. My point is this. You and I are extremely, we're, we're beings that are very easily influenced. And if you and I are going to honestly pray for deliverance from God, it requires you and I, as we pray that prayer, saying, I recognize my own frailty, and as I'm asking you to deliver me, I'm not going to put myself in situations that make it to where I'm going to actively pursue sin. I'm going to take the truth about my own human nature very seriously. And as I pray for your deliverance, lead me not into temptation, I'm not taking the motorcycle right into temptation along that road. I want you to begin to prepare your hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper with me. And I'm going to read two passages that I'd like you to consider as you think about partaking of the Lord's Supper. In fact, if the men would begin to to come forward, don't don't pass out the elements yet, but if you would just come forward and and prepare to to do so. I want us in the the quietness of our hearts to consider these these two passages that deal with the, the heart attitude that we should have as we rightly pray the disciples' prayer. The first is in Mark 11, 25. Says, Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And if we, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper together, I'd like you to consider very carefully, Lord, as I prepare to take this and remember your death for my sins, that you have forgiven me through your blood. God, there's this person that I've not been forgiving. Maybe it's, maybe it's your father. It's Father's Day, and you think about some things your dad did, and your heart is very embittered toward him. And I want you to say, God, I release that person. I'm, I'm, I, I recognize there's some things we still need to do relationally to restore our relationship, but, but I'm releasing that person of the obligation to pay me back. I want you to commit to do that before you partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. The other thing I want you to think through as we think about rightly praying before God occurs in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul warns against idolatry. He says, verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Then he says, uh, flee from idolatry, he says in verse 14. Flee from idolatry. And he talks about the Lord's Supper. He says it's participation in, in the body of Christ. It's participation in the blood of Christ. And so as you prepare to participate in the blood and body of Christ, I want your commitment to God to be, God, I am 
fleeing from idolatry. There have been some things in my life that I have been worshiping instead of you. And as I'm praying for your deliverance, I'm not some hypocrite saying, God, please deliver me. I'm, I'm struggling with pornography. Uh, please deliver me. Now I'm, I'm going to go home and, and watch these things that I know cause me to, to think about things I know I shouldn't think about. God, uh, uh, cause me to be able to be delivered from temptation. And I know I have this relationship with this guy that uh, doesn't bring honor to you. Deliver me from temptation, but I'm going to continue to pursue that relationship. Or, or God, please uh, free me from these temptations, I'm, I'm a terrible gossip and I'm not honoring you in, in this relationship with a, with, a, with a friend. I'm going to continue it, but deliver me from temptation. I want, whatever it is, I want you as you begin to take the Lord's Supper this morning to say, God, deliver me from temptation and here's how I'm going to pursue you as you deliver me. I'm going to turn from these things as I turn to the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ. I want you to think about those two things. Who is it that God is calling you to forgive as you celebrate the forgiveness you've received through the Lord's Supper? And how is it that God is calling you to greater holiness as you participate in remembering the sacrifice and you're participating in the, the sacrifice of his body, the shedding of his blood? How is he calling you to deeper holiness? Let's take a moment to pray in the quietness of our heart. And Father, I am confident that each of, in, uh, each of us in this room have been wronged by, by someone. I pray that if there's in our hearts bitterness, that you would release that and cause us to release others. We pray for your forgiveness as we ought to forgive others. and We pray, Father, too, for us to pursue righteousness. And as we participate in your shed blood and your sacrificed body cause us to do so with hearts that are committed to pursuing purity in our relationships, in our thoughts, in our, our words, in our speech, in our actions, in our workplace, in our schools, in our homes. God, help us not to partake of your communion in a flippant way, but in a way that recognizes your holiness, your love. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.